it's Lisa. Welcome back to another episode of Bird on the Wire. Tonight, uh, we have for you David Moskrop. He's my guest. David is an author, columnist, an avid Twitter user, and he's currently a little infamous for recently being one of the subjects in a Toronto Star article about people in their hair during the pandemic. So David has not had a cut or a shave, I think, since the end of December 2019. And a couple of us are starting to think about an intervention, but he's really a great guy and someone really smart to talk to. To be totally transparent, this wasn't our first conversation. Uh, The first time David and I taped the segment for the pod, I obviously didn't look at a clock or set a timer because we talked for nearly four hours. And while we were rather entertaining to each other, I don't think you would find it so much. So what we did, we decided to do a redo. We took a mulligan and this time I did set a timer and we were able to talk again. So one thing I just want to point out too, uh, we talk about the Kamloops uh, residential school discovery of the uh, mass grave that was found. Uh, but we did not talk about the 751 unmarked graves at Cowess's First Nation. And that's simply because uh, that event hadn't yet happened in between when David and I first spoke and followed up. Uh, with that, you know, today I'm, it's June 29th, we're two days before uh, Canada Day. And I've never really been one of those people that gets all dressed up and, you know, red and white painted face and, all the, you know, the other things that go along with it. That's not never been my thing, but this year for sure, there won't be any Canada Day celebration. I just think with everything that we now know, with everything that's in the public and also out of respect, I don't think that we should be celebrating Canada Day. And that's, that's my opinion and other people hold it too. I know that there is currently a federal leader out there who's trying to position himself as the only one who cares about celebrating this, quote, greatest country, which I think is a mistake. You know, we really do need to reflect on what we've learned and recognize that Canada shouldn't be so so smug when we talk about ourselves in those terms, uh, because we have some work to do. And we have some things we need to atone for, and we need to make reparations, and we need real reconciliation, uh, not just pretty words and you know fancy ideas. It needs to be real, and it needs to happen now. So with that, one of the things I was thinking about was how can I you know, show my allyship and my solidarity to Indigenous people on July 1. And I came across a social media account on Instagram that amplifies traditionally marginalized and racialized voices. Uh, And they had a few ideas, so I'm gonna share them with you here. So one is to donate to an Indigenous organization or a fundraiser. Uh, So Blackbird, my firm, on behalf of myself and my staff, Zach Hartley, Kirsten and Kat, uh, we're going to donate to the Indian Residential School Survivor Society uh, as a way that we can 
show support to an organization that's doing really important work. Another thing they suggested is that people can learn about the history and legacy of residential schools. All you got to do is go online or walk into a bookstore. There's some really great books written on this. There's also books written about the Indian Act, which is also something I think non-Indigenous people need to learn more about so they can have an accurate understanding of our history. And just pick up a couple of books on Indigenous culture and our true history read them, pass them along, share and talk about them with other people. Another thing you can do instead of wearing red and white on Thursday is to wear orange. Show your support uh, for those impacted by residential schools. Also hold space for engaging in conversations about the true history of Canada. Talk with your friends about it. Talk with your family about it. The more we talk about it, the the I guess it starts clearing the roadblocks to making sure that we can have that reconciliation and and reparations and atone for what has been done. And lastly, you can follow and support and amplify Indigenous voices on social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. There's some really great informative Indigenous content creators out there. And uh, let's, let's give them their due. They're doing a lot of the hard work, the heavy lifting for us, and they shouldn't have to. So let's show our support. And I think lastly, you know, one of the things we also need to do is to be honest with ourselves about what we don't know and be willing to learn in a way that allows us to encourage decision makers and government leaders to do the right thing. I think the famous Maya Angelou quote, I'm paraphrasing and I'm going to do it badly, but basically when, when you, when you know better, you do better. And that's a place where we all need to get to. So with that, I hope you enjoy uh, my discussion with David that took many, many, many weeks in the making to make this happen. And I thank you. So thank you for being here and, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Lisa, and I'm back with you tonight with David Moscrop. He's a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, and he's the author of Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. He's also a political commentator on television, radio, print media, and the host of Open to Debate, a current affairs podcast. And I'm going to include the last line here just because it's sitting here on the column. He holds a PhD in political science from UBC, my alma mater. Thanks for coming, David. My pleasure. Well, we should tell people that this isn't the first time we've recorded a podcast together. Uh, We tried this a couple of weeks ago, and unfortunately, we didn't really keep track of time and I think we talked for close to about three hours, which uh, caused my staff who have to edit this poor podcast uh, to, to have a bit of a, a, a coronary. So I promised tonight that I would set a timer. I've actually done that. So we have at this point, 30 minutes and 36 seconds. Uh, and I just thought it would help us keep on track. We'll just do the hits. We'll just play the hits. 
Yeah. So no what am I talking? <laughs> yeah, I Shut up and listening. play the hits. Yeah. <laughs> we we were all over the place when we talked a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And I wanted to talk tonight a little bit about some current events uh, and a column you wrote. So we all are aware now of the 215, um, 215 children who were found in an unmarked, unmarked mass grave in Kamloops at a residential school. And that has been uh, a topic of national conversation ever since. Uh, it has been interesting to see some of the reactions from leaders. You know, we have progressive leaders that are uh, appalled and shocked and want to, to do things to, to, to right these wrongs. And then we have some leaders, some conservative leaders like Jason Kenney, who are coming out and kind of being, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald apologists saying that we're trying to cancel him and we're trying to cancel our history and cancel who we are as Canadians. And I think he even went as far as to say that he may have been a flawed individual, but he was a great leader. And I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on all of this that's going on. Well, Johnny McDonald objectively was not a great leader first and foremost. Uh, he was deeply criticized during his time, he was corrupt as the day is long, he was chased from office because of it. But more importantly than that, he was uh, an architect of dispossession and, and genocide. And if we are compiling a scorecard, if you're complicit in genocide, it doesn't really matter what else you did. So it's just beyond the pale, and it, it, it isn't just a history problem. Our history and how we conceive of it and talk about it affects our present. It underwrites our present, including our systems. It also manifests itself physically through statues and monuments that people have to walk by, people who have been traumatized by uh, generations of neglect and abuse and exploitation, especially Indigenous peoples, who have to look at these statues and monuments and and would you would you expect somebody to walk past a statue of someone who was a part uh, an architect of their dispossession and genocide it's cruel and unusual and and has no place in any country and especially one that pretends to be a liberal democracy so i, I was deeply offended but not the least bit surprised at the defenses of john a mcdonald mostly coming mm. from white men by the way often yes. coming from white men named john because that's just how uh, unbelievably <laughs> uninventive we are as a country and how astonishingly white and male our media space is and, and centrist, if not right wing. And I, I say, tear the bastard down, tear him down everywhere. Ideally we'll do it voluntarily, but I certainly don't mind if people take a little bit of initiative of their own, which is as we course, saw in Toronto. Exactly. Which is of course what you were writing about with respect to uh, the Ryerson statue coming down, uh, and I think I saw a photograph, and I can't remember where I saw it, and I can't remember who took it, and after uh, Ryerson had been pulled off that podium or whatever you want to call it, you know, an Indigenous woman got up on it uh, and, mm. you know, fist in the air, and it was just, for me, it was just like this, this profound moment of you know, yeah, this, this is what we're supposed to be doing. I, I can't imagine if I were 
indigenous having to go to a school named after Ryerson or Sir John A. Macdonald, or to your point, you know, walking past statues of these people. And I've seen, you know, some of these conservative white men uh, who are talking about cancel culture, who are saying, well, then you have to uh, be upset with Tommy Douglas and you have to be upset, you know, the statue of the famous five women on Parliament Hill. And I'm just like, look, I'm my my judgment and anger at these people aren't just at conservative past leaders in, in history of our country. It's anyone, progressive or otherwise, who has brought harms to a great number of people. And I, I don't even understand why we keep putting up statues to, to people. I mean, people are flawed. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should. And there, there's a great column in The Guardian that, that I cite in the piece that I wrote that, that I recommend folks to read about that. Tear them all down. I mean, it's funny as people were sort of coming at folks like me online saying, well, then you've got to tear down Tommy Douglas. Never mind that Tommy Douglas is nothing like John A. MacDonald. He had some deeply problematic and offensive views on uh, eugenics, uh, eugenics when he was young. He disavowed them and did nothing about them when he was in government. It's not like he acted on them. John A. MacDonald committed helped commit genocide and designed a residential school system uh, that underwrote that. That's a very different thing. Like the fact that, that these brain geniuses can't wrap their heads around the idea that there are scale to things uh, is, uh, is typical. I mean, it, it's disingenuous at best. It's the evidence of a mind not at work uh, at, at worst. But uh, you know, my response is, I don't care. Tear them down. I Tear down uh, Pierre Trudeau over the white paper, I, uh, over the FLQ crisis and abuse of civil liberties. I'm not going to be upset by that. Very few people are. Statues uh, don't teach us anything. They're typically pretty ugly, by the way, the ones dedicated to people. Uh, history will be just fine. It exists in books. It exists in the zeitgeist. You can look it up on the internet. It's never been easier to access history. You're not accessing it through statues. What people are saying when they defend statues is that they have a conception of the country and of this country's heroes that is highly uh, mythic that they don't want to be disturbed because it would upset their view of the world and they refuse to grow up and they refuse to open their eyes. Well, to hell with them. Uh, this country is shared with a lot of people uh, who have who've been traumatized by past and present injustices. And that's more important than the fact that you're some bow tie wearing young conservative who's doing this you know, for king and country bit that would have been out of place 50 years ago, let alone today. Well, to hell with you too. And so I find it deeply offensive that the sort of reactionary folks are pushing back against this uh, just because it, it, it upsets their deeply fragile worldview. Well, too right. bad. And, and here I got news for them. It's coming either way. Absolutely. And, and we saw it. And, you know, it's funny, Edgerton Ryerson, the statue came off the plinth just a couple of days ago. His head has made its way rather beautifully, by the way, over to Landback Lane, where there's a photo of oh, it that's on a pike. Uh, in the Toronto Star. So if you look at the Toronto Star, it has an article on this uh, beautiful photo that I highly recommend people check out. It is uh, Edgerton Ryerson's head on a pike uh, in the sort of tradition of the Cromwells, Thomas uh, and, and Oliver uh, and Thomas More and John the Baptist and others. I, I found it really interesting and cathartic, by the way. I mean, I, I certainly don't speak for anybody but myself, especially Indigenous folks. I found it deeply uh, cathartic to watch these things unfold. And I, and I certainly hope there was some sort of feeling of catharsis in, in indigenous communities and other communities too, 
of course, this is only a very small step, but I certainly hope there was some catharsis there. Well, and I think too, you know, we're, we're now kind of, you know, through COVID, we, we saw more and more indigenous communities, black communities demanding justice. And it was fantastic. And, and I hope we continue doing that. And it's interesting when Jason Kenney came out this week to try to try to defend McDonald, he had a quote, he said, I think Canada is a great historical achievement. And one of the things I think he's counting on is that most people don't know our full and accurate history of this country. Mm -hmm. You know, we're founded on stolen land, stolen culture, stolen children, uh, and we've not made, we've, we've not reconciled, to use a word that everyone's using these days, you know, as the government is trying to uh, have reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. And of course, it's more than a phrase. It's more than just saying that this is the most important relationship we have. You know, you have to walk the talk. And people need to know that accurate sense of history. And I, you're much younger than I am, but I never learned in K to 12 about that history. I didn't learn about residential schools until I hit university. And it wasn't because I had a professor who told me, it was because I went to school with an Indigenous man who wrote an essay one day and told us about his experience at a residential school. And I think maybe that was what started my own kind of awakening to you know, social justice and all the rest of it. Uh, but most people don't have that sense of understanding. And I think that's why people like Kenny and other you know, white guys are so upset because we're we're now provoking that male white power structure. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. there there's this sense that what we're what we may be doing here is upsetting that balance that benefits white men versus people of color, indigenous peoples, and women. And we are kind of, I think, at a at a point a big change. I certainly hope so. We, we most certainly are. And, and in the article, I say sort of imagine that your forebears stole $100 from someone and generation over generation, it accrued interest and, and had become $500 in capital. And you're given this $500 inheritance and somebody came along and took 250 of it from you. You would think that a great injustice. And yet it's truly a great bargain because you had no right to any of it in the first place. And when we think about reparations, land back, reconciliation, and righting historical wrongs, it feels like an injustice to the privileged who are used to just having mm -hmm. and never having to give. The fact is that so much of their privilege is, is based on dispossession and exploitation that what feels to them to be a great injustice is a sort of light evening of the scales. So part of, of wrapping our heads around what, what we need to do individually and collectively is accepting that we're going to have to bear some burden and share some responsibility to write not just past, but ongoing injustices. And people have a hard time with that because they don't see themselves as part of these exploitative systems, even though they are part of it. And, and that's a real problem. And I, I didn't, I get that for many, this is hard to understand and, and slow to learn. And I didn't learn about residential schools in the Catholic high school, uh, elementary and high school systems I attended in Ontario. I learned about it a little bit in my later undergraduate years because I had the right class and the right professors. I didn't really start to understand this stuff until I did my PhD. I was in my mid twenties and it was because I was at UBC and it was it pervaded the environment, thank God. 
but I was deeply ignorant. And not only did I not know things, which is a problem, I didn't know what I didn't know, which is the bigger problem. I know mm-hmm. I don't know things about physics, uh, but I, it's different to say that I don't understand particle physics than it is to say, uh, not only do I not understand indigenous issues in this country, I don't even understand that I need to understand it. And, and you know, putting that on the agenda is utterly critical and nudging folks and explaining to them that this is something you've got to do the labor to understand is important, especially because it isn't up to these communities, black communities, trans communities, indigenous communities, whatever it might be, disabled communities to do the work for you. It's not up to them to educate you, it's up to you. And so not only is it about learning, it is about us taking on that labor uh, in the service of justice and the service of community to do that work. And that's hard because someone's got to nudge you, right? It's got to come from somewhere. If for, for some people listening, it might, this might be that moment. For me, it was being at, at grad school at UBC, but it doesn't happen by accident, typically. It, it, uh, it, you have to put in the work. Absolutely. And you know, to your point, we, we can't expect others to do that labor for us, given that so many of them are still, are still facing racial injustice, are still facing discrimination, are still living with trauma. Yeah, so many people that I know were so profoundly affected by the discovery in Kamloops on a very personal level. And it was because they have relatives who went to residential schools. I was speaking to someone whose friend's children were taken in the 60s scoop, you know, and a lot of people don't know about the 60s scoop either. There's just so much of our history that has been hidden from us to people's detriment and not just the people who have been mistreated along the way, but to people like ourselves as well, you know, as a, as a white woman, as an intersectional feminist, it is incumbent upon us to do the work ourselves to learn the history and to figure out how we can be a true ally as opposed to a performative ally, because you see so much of that right now. I think I saw on a different subject, I saw the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada did a LGBTQ commercial, I guess, celebrating Pride Month. And it just, it just felt wrong. And I think that's part of the problem is that you know, their real actions belie those types of, of sentiments. And there's, you know, so much work that needs to be done. And the government, I think, honestly, it, it, this is the first government that we've really had that has put a mandate together to move toward reconciliation. Now, we can disagree about how fast that, <laughs> that's moving. And yeah. I would probably agree, agree with you on that. Because I think, too, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's in government. And this person had said, so what do you suggest? I said, well, why don't you stop suing First Nations? Mm-hmm. That, that would be my, my first suggestion. So, you know, there are more things that can be done, you know, eliminating drinking water advisories, stop suing First Nations, give them control over child welfare, all of those types of things. And the simple fact is there needs to be reparations. What, what are your thoughts on how we make it right? Yes, I mean, abso- yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm speaking as, as myself and, and the, 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 my perspective comes from 
paying attention to and listening to uh, indigenous communities. I mean, whenever I weigh into these conversations, which is sometimes it is from the perspective of someone who's listening. And, and the first mm. point I, I try to make every time, I think I often I make most of the time, which is step one and rule one is to defer to, and to listen to those communities. And because they are the ones uh, who, from whom we ought to be taking our cues. And, the, the, you know, the TRC calls to action, all the things you mentioned, uh, serious discussions about returning land and mm. the conceptions of how to deal uh, on a nation to nation basis. And that is going to be, I think, extraordinarily difficult for a lot of people. Well, too bad, but I think it would be. And we're seeing the tensions play out. We saw them in Wet'suwet'en. We're seeing them in British Columbia with logging, although there seems to be some perhaps precedent setting movements coming out of John Horgan's uh, BC. Uh, not perfect, but encouraging. Uh, because here's the thing, if you're going to deal with an indigenous nation as a nation, it can't be, well, we respect you as a nation unless we want to put the pipeline through, in which case, sorry, you're not right. a nation, or we want to cut down your trees or whatever it might be. You have to deal with them as if you were dealing with, as far as I'm concerned, a sovereign state which is a very 100%. different contestable argument. I mean, certainly not everybody sees it that way, but I mean, if, that, if we're going to be serious about that, uh, what right does the federal government of Canada or the British Columbian government or the Quebec government, whoever it might be, have to make decisions on unceded land? And the answer is, well, none, right? I mean, if, if, if technically, like, both morally and I would argue legally, you've got no right to make those decisions. And in the piece, I talk about this in, in thinking about the whole country. When I, Canada is, in, my argument is Canada is an illegitimate state. Now, you, people's immediate reaction to that typically is to scoff and sort of say, what are you talking about? Or, or you know, if you're a real idiot, say, well, if you don't like it, why don't you go somewhere else? As if I wouldn't take them up on it if I could. Um, Canada is, is you, you have to wrap your head around this. Colonizers from England and France came to this country and built a state through dispossession and genocide. Now, my first question to people is, is that legitimate? My argument is it's not. If you say it is, then you've got a problem. If you say it is, then you have to accept that contemporary folks have a right to do whatever they want to defend themselves, and it's legitimate because that's what the colonizers did, right? You can't change the rules. If you say no, then my question is, well, at what point did Canada become legitimate? We legitimized the state after the fact with a set of rules that said that what we did was okay because we've done it. And so the state is founded on, and by the way, that is before we even get into problematic uh, treaty and legal issues that were, were live at the time and still, which, which lawyer, constitutional lawyers will talk to you about, which even further complicates the issue, but just on, on this simple basis. Well, I'm saying, so if we start from that, we're at the very least a morally illegitimate state. That doesn't, I don't, I'm not saying we should therefore tear down the Canadian state. I'm saying is we need to start from the position that we understand that this is where we've come from and work back from there to decide what that implies in terms of what we owe the, the Indigenous people, what we owe one another, what we owe the world, and, and build out from that. Because I think it implies quite a few things, including extraordinary measures to reconciliate, uh, to reconcile with Indigenous peoples. And I think that is on the agenda conceptually and otherwise in a way that hasn't been for a long time and and it's about time that it was uh, i completely uh, agree with you and we'll just we'll we'll wrap this up one of the things you know after premier kenny went on his his little tear there defending sir john a 
the grand chief Vernon watchmaker of Treaty 6, he had said quite clearly that the country was established at the cost of our lives and our well-being. And those are the voices that we need to be hearing more from. We need to be hearing more from people who have that type of knowledge and wisdom. And because they're actually sharing with us the true history of our country. And I think that we are privileged to be able to hear from folks like the Grand Chief. Yeah, and I mean, and, and hear and listen, right? And, and I think, you know, we have in this country a tendency to capture a lot of the, uh, of the symbolic power and the rhetoric. Politicians certainly are good at this, you know, and, and to, to mobilize it for political purposes, but then to dampen things down when it comes time to act. And not only do we have a duty to hear, but we, we have a duty to listen and to, to act. And, and, you know, it's, it's one thing to lower the flags or to have a day. It's another to get to stop fighting First Nations kids in court, to give land back, to, to have true nation-to-nation uh, relationships, to transfer resources, to settle treaties that you're stubbornly fighting for years and years and years because yeah. you don't want to set a precedent, right? And that's a different thing. And that's not just about the government of the day. That's about the state. Governments come and go. Mm-hmm. The state stays. And the state is inherently conservative. It's inherently exploitative and defensive. And if we're truly going to get not just reconciliation for indigenous people, but structural justice for typically marginalized communities, we need to reconceive of how the state operates. And that's going to be a much bigger battle. And I think it's going to happen, but I also think it's going to be particularly nasty. But I do think the early stages of that reconceptualization is happening and people are just going to have to wrap their heads around it because this isn't going anywhere. This is the beginning. This is the beginning. I think you're right. I think if if the one thing that COVID brought us as a benefit was us to be able to take a good hard look at ourselves Mm -hmm. and, you know, who we want to be coming out of this, you know, everyone talks about the return to normal. I don't really want to return to normal. I want, I want to return to a a better place. and, And that might make me a bit of a Pollyanna, but I, but I think it's possible. You know, we've exposed through COVID so many cleavages and problems in society, you know, how we treat our elders in long-term care homes, racial injustice, income disparity, you know, all of those things are things that we're going to have to address and make better. And if that means we have to start disrupting our systems to your point, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's something that needs to be done. It's going to be deeply comfortable for some, and, and, and yet for some people who are used to being deeply comfortable, yes. it's going to be especially uncomfortable, well, well tough. I mean, who, who said it was going, life was meant to be anything but that? I mean, it was, it, it's just, there are times where that's the case, and especially when it comes to the questions of justice, it ought to be. And I think it had, you know, the pandemic has exposed what a lot of people already knew because they were living it, but it's exposed it to a lot of people who didn't know before, didn't pretend to, to know what or certainly didn't care before. Uh, but it's going to be a struggle because, you know, that old line is true. Power concedes nothing without a demand. And, but now the demands are being made. And I, and I think that's going to be a struggle where, where things may be reshaped. But again, it's not, it's not going to happen voluntarily. There's a real danger we just sort of default back to where we were, even though we shouldn't. And we've said that we won't. Uh, you know, we typically do. Yes. And so, you know, we, that's something I'm watching very, very very closely and so i'm sort of cynical but 
<laughs> so as we talk about that kind of change, we have a federal election on the horizon because, of course, we have a minority government. There's an expectation that there will be an election before the House of Commons returns. I think it was a conservative motion the other day where they wanted to have some time for MPs who are not going to be running again to be able to say their great goodbyes because, of course, you know, that's super important. Um, so what what is your prediction in terms of a, when are we going to have an election? And B, are these issues going to make it onto the ballot questions? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, the elections are never really about anything, right? They're about a whole bunch of things and a lot of feelings. And sometimes there are policies that stand out. Um, there are extraordinary elections where even a single policy stands out. I think of sort of the free trade election of, of 88. And 84, 80, 88. But typically, elections are about a whole bunch of different things. I, I would think that it seems fairly likely that we're looking at a fall election. You know, you know, when in the fall? I don't know. September, October. I don't particularly want one, uh, but it seems to be the case that we're getting close to it. Probably vaccine dependent, but we also learned right. just today, a day of recording. Uh, that we are going to get a whole whop, uh, whopping load of, well, now I'm speaking moistly, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> I just, there's got to be a better way to say that. We're going to get a whole bunch of Moderna shots coming uh, by the end of July. And I suspect the vaccine rate's going to pick up and the, the rate of dosing and the, and the overall vaccination rates are going to pick up a lot, which means that we're probably going to be safe by sort of September, October anyway. So I, I, that would be my guess. But who knows? I mean, you know, it's prognostication. But I, I don't know what the election will be about. I have a concern that it's going to be about nothing. Yeah, I mean, my sense is I think it's going to be, I mean, depending upon how, what triggers the election, you know, if the House isn't sitting and we have an election, clearly it's because the government is, has asked, I guess, not the governor general, but the the acting. <laughs> I think we'll have one by then. I think we'll have one by then. <laughs> so if, you know, Justin Trudeau walks across the street and asks for you know, the dissolution of the House so we can have an election, I think the grounds for that is going to be that we've turned the tide post-COVID recovery and they need a mandate going forward to do that. Oh, yeah. And of course, you wait for people to be vaccinated. You make sure people, I mean, people are always happier when the house isn't sitting. People don't like to hear from politicians as much as they usually do. So it will really be dependent upon what kind of a summer we have, you know, that whole Thing about the two dose summer, you know, people are starting to tweet about two dose spring because we are moving faster. We are get mil getting millions and millions more uh, vaccines into this country, and it, we appear to be getting them into arms quite quickly as well. So, yeah, I think it's, I think the election sooner rather than later. And I really hope that part of that discussion is how do we make those structural changes to make things better for people who have historically been wronged and people who are currently being wronged. You know, we, we, have, we have race issues in this country and we need to start addressing that uh, with a little bit more energy, I think. Hugely. I think, I, I, I strongly agree. And yet I have a feeling that it's going to be one of these things where the election is about the fact that the pandemic is more or less over in this mm -hmm. country. It won't be over globally for years, but in this country, 
right? It will be over more or less. And people will just be glad to be done. And they'll, I suspect it favors a liberal majority. And, and the focus will be on sort of, you know, the roaring 20s and, and getting to that rather than mm. to addressing injustices. So it'll be incumbent on, on us, on, on you, on me, on the, everyone listening, uh, on all of us to, to work hard to, to make the agenda much more substantive than it will otherwise be to put Indigenous reconciliation on the agenda, to put anti-Black racism, anti-Muslim hatred on the agenda, and to hold politicians to account for their failures because it's not going to happen naturally. It's, it's, and, it's, and those communities alone won't be able to do it. It's got to become a, a mass effort. I, I'm deeply worried we're going to default, but I don't think we should accept that because to say, well, it's just going to happen anyway, therefore, what should I do is, is a sort of very dangerous and privileged nihilism. Mm -hmm. I think we should take the weariness and say, okay, what can I do about it rather than just folding like a lawn chair? And so I, I, I'm certainly committed to making my best effort to make that the case. And I think all of us should be, because it's certainly possible. Uh, the last thing we need is another Seinfeld election. Uh, so you know, we got to step up. Well, you know, when, whenever it happens, I'm sure you and I will be talking about it. And I want to thank you for coming on to Bird on the Wire again, because we managed to keep it in a reasonable <laughs> period of time. At this we point. did. I know. Did the timer work? Uh, it did. I, it just went off. But I just want to thank you, too, for the articles that you write. And, you know, keep writing, David. You have a really important perspective, and I enjoy reading uh, your work. So thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for saying that and for having me on. I, I'm happy to come back anytime. And when this is all over, maybe even do a live face-to-face -face recording. Oh. Given that we're not that far apart. That is true. But we have, have, we have to have cocktails. Yeah, well, it's not going to take a lot of arm twisting. So. <laughs> and then you get to sign my book. And everyone, you should buy David's book, uh, Too Dumb for Democracy. I believe if you go to his Twitter or social media uh, profiles, you'll find that there is a 20% discount at the moment. Yes, uh, until so June 20th, <laughs> So buy David's book so he can go get a haircut when salons reopen. And a cocktail. Yes. So thank you so much, David. Thank you. Bird on the Wire is hosted and executive produced by Lisa Kirby, CEO of Blackbird Strategies. Zach Babbins and Hartley Witten are associate producers. Artwork and music by Zach Babbins and engineered and edited by Hartley Witten. From government relations to public relations and everything in between, Blackbird Strategies is here to help your business, association, or First Nation advocate for change. Contact Blackbird Strategies today to learn how we can help you get the job done. Thanks for listening.